Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to Citizens. My name is CJ. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, this morning marks the beginning of the Advent season where we anticipate the first coming of Jesus, where God descends from heaven, limiting his own divine attributes, takes on flesh that he might perfectly understand the human condition and gives his own life to the creation, though we are undeserving. And so during Advent, we're going to look at four themes, faith, peace, joy, and love. And this morning we are beginning with faith. It is a terrible feeling when somebody refuses to believe you. I was driving my kids to school one morning last year and on my way to school, there's a really busy four-way stop with the crossing guard. There's people walking you know, across the street with their kids. And I misunderstood what the crossing guard was signaling to me. And so I proceeded into the intersection. And as soon as I drove through, a police car pulled in behind me and I felt that sinking feeling as the lights flashed and sirens rang. And so I immediately pulled over and as the police officer is approaching my car, my first words are, I'm sorry. Um, I figured I would sig signal to him um, as quickly as I could that whatever mistake I had made, I was willing to acknowledge. But man, he just he began to just berate me and shame me in front of my whole family as to like how awful a person I was and driver I was. It was really humiliating. And what was really frustrating for me was there was no defending myself. There was no opportunity to explain my intent. So I tried to like tell him, um, I got the impression he thought that I was reckless and that I didn't care about what was going on. And I tried to explain to him like, no, actually like I drive my kids to school on this route every day. So I'm aware of families to which he said, you drive that way in front of your kids. That's just sad. And he walked away. And even as I tell the story now, my blood kind of boils inside me. Um, it, it is so terrible when you're trying to explain yourself to somebody or, or express yourself and somebody just won't believe you. It is equally terrible when you believe somebody else and they turn out to be a liar, right? You trusted them, you believed them, they seemed honest at the time. What they offered matched with what you needed. But then in hindsight, it was all a sham. Okay? I'm guessing that this police officer uh, who pulled me over knew that feeling really well. Um, how many tall tales had he heard over the years? We all have our own stories of, of uh, being betrayed, of not being believed. We have stories where um, someone refused to believe us when we're telling the truth. We have stories where we believed somebody who turned out to be a liar. And you and I even have stories where we were untrustworthy, telling half-truths, leaving important details out, if not deliberately manipulating, and people believed us when they shouldn't have. Okay, we live, we live in a world right now where we are 
saturated with false information. We've never had more access to information, but we've also never been more vulnerable to misinformation. And so this new reality of sort of all this information coming at me combined with um, experiences of mistrust would cause us to ask the question, can I trust anyone? Is it wise to have faith in anything? And the dilemma is really troubling because we all intuitively know that when it comes to relationships, relationships only work where faith is involved. If I don't risk in relationship, I will never have a meaningful relationship. But my options are limited to unfaithful people. Faith in unfaithful people is my only chance at having any level of intimacy with anyone. So how do I reconcile this reality that I am faithless, that I am untrusting, and that others are unfaithful and untrustworthy? Regardless of how you feel about the Bible, whether you think it's true or whether you, you find it compelling or you believe the Bible, one thing is certain, it speaks to this problem. It deals directly with this problem. The relationship of God to humans in the scriptures operates on this faith-faithfulness construct. Okay, from the very beginning of the scriptures all the way to the end, God over and over again describes himself as faithful. He says, I'm a faithful God. And he describes people as unfaithful. And then what God does in the scriptures is he invites unfaithful people to place their faith in him because of his faithfulness. How does this work? How can people who are faithful faithless and unfaithful, find faith in God. Only in Jesus. Jesus makes a way. When he came as an infant, taking on flesh, he made the impossible possible. And so today, Jesus can give us the faith we are lacking. He can give us the faith required to believe in a faithful God. And here's what I, I believe the Spirit wants to say to each of us this morning. Jesus gives faith to the faithless and unfaithful because he is faithful. And God is faithful whether we believe in him or not. See, Jesus is not like anyone we know. He's not threatened by our lack of faith. Um, it doesn't surprise him. It doesn't cause him to waver or change. He says, I'll get into this with you. I'll step into this place with you where you lack faith, where you are unfaithful, and I will prove myself faithful to you. Let me pray and then we'll jump into Hebrews. Jesus, this morning, we confess that we come 
trusting no one but ourselves. We lack faith. We also are unfaithful, Lord. We have fallen short of your glory. We have sought out hope and joy and flourishing in places that have not provided for the deep longings of our heart. And so we come and confess, Lord Jesus, that we need a savior today. We need your faithfulness. God, as we reflect on all that we've been given this week, uh, as we celebrate Thanksgiving, we, we recognize and remember your faithfulness. We realize that you are a good father who's given us good gifts. And so we just praise your name this morning. We ask, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts in this Advent season to receive you, that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on you during this next month, not on our wealth or our consumption of material things, not on food or drink or even relationships with people. God, let us keep our eyes fixed on you. Help us to sing in our hearts, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be there and then we'll be uh, in a a passage in John and in Luke 1. Uh, If you have time, we preached uh, through the book of Hebrews, um, I think two years ago now, um, and Dave preached this passage and it's really fantastic. So I encourage you to go back and listen. Before we jump into the specific uh, passage and topic of faith this morning, though, I do want to talk a little bit about what Advent is and why we celebrate it. Advent is actually the very beginning of the church calendar, and it means coming or it means arrival. Um, We begin the annual liturgy cycle with the remembrance of Christ's incarnation and we receive his coming as though we are like Israel waiting in anticipation for the Messiah. As Kevin was sharing with us earlier that Advent sort of brings up in us this need to wait because while we have Jesus, we still await his return. And so um, we are joining with Israel in their anticipation of Christ. Now, Remember that Israel was in really bad shape before Jesus came. They had disobeyed God and been unfaithful to the requirements of the covenant they had made with him. So God allows foreign countries to come in and take their land and scatter them throughout the Middle East. And then God is silent for 400 years. Okay, so you have a people waiting on a Messiah who are like, God, have you completely abandoned us? Do you even hear our cries? And so Advent invites us to realize just how much we are like Israel. We too have been unfaithful. We too are enslaved, scattered, displaced. We too, like Israel, have perpetuated injustice and unrighteousness. We need a judge, a perfect judge who will come and rescue us. We need a just king to come and rule and reign. We need a perfect prophet who will speak words of truth to us, reminding us who God is and who we are. We need a perfect once and for all priest who will come and mediate the relationship with God. 
becoming a sacrifice for us. We need a Messiah who will come and set the captives free. One whose kingdom will never end. A Messiah who will be faithful to a faithless and unfaithful people. So we're going to jump into Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. And the writer of Hebrews right away tells us what faith in Jesus is. He or she says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The assurance and conviction that things we hope for but cannot see will be ours. That is the definition of faith. And so one immediate question then is, what do I hope for? What are these things that I hope for? What is the object of my faith? Is what I hope for in my life something that I can see or something that is unseen? Are my hopes for things that are beyond the visible or do I tend to place my hope in only material things that can be enjoyed right now? Things within my reach that will meet my present felt needs. If so, my faith is wrapped up in the created, not the creator. And that was Israel's problem as well. They hoped for a Messiah, but they wanted a Messiah who would come and conquer Rome. They were thinking only materially and presently. True faith, the faith that the writer of Hebrews is inviting us to, is a faith where we hope for something much more than what is right in front of us. See, if you thought your faith in Jesus would bring you immediate, momentary, material blessing, then you are likely frustrated and let down by him. Because your faith was not in him but in what you thought he came to do for you. There's a way to figure out what your hope is in. Think about what in your life is bringing you the most grief right now. What is the source of your greatest sadness? If you can pinpoint that, you will find someone or something that you have placed some amount of faith in that simply cannot provide for you what only Jesus can. Disappointment, grief, and loss are conditions of a heart seeking joy in anything other than Christ. I was reflecting this week on this passage for myself and I am regularly reminded through my struggles and through my grief that my hope, CJ's hope, is in measured success. That's like my highest hope, 
That's where I find myself most let down. I was just confessing this to Anthony. I hung out with Anthony, took a walk with him, a socially distanced mass on walk with Anthony yesterday. And I was confessing to him that I, I want results. I wanna know that what I do has meaning and purpose. And God is regularly demonstrating to me, lovingly exposing to me that I have a hope in, in what is seen rather than what is unseen. And that is, the, that is the invitation of Christ to every single one of us. You have some space in your life right now where Jesus is lovingly and kindly inviting you to see, exposing for you that your hope is in something other than him. The main way that he exposes this is through suffering and trials. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 through 9. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's, he's saying this is a good thing. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The manner in which we endure suffering and trials reveals the condition or quality of our faith. It demonstrates whether it's genuine or not. And man, this is really painful. It is really painful, but it is a gift. Jesus loves us far too much to let us go on thinking our hope is in him when it is in something or someone else. As he does this, he's gently and carefully exposing our faithlessness and our unfaithfulness and preparing us to receive a God who is faithful on our behalf. So that the more I recognize in myself how faithless and unfaithful I am, the more primed I am to receive the gospel and the more beautiful the gospel becomes to me. But according to this writer of Hebrews, rightly placed hope is not enough. It's not the only aspect of faith. The passage also calls us to an assurance of faith, a conviction that what we want or need in Christ will indeed be ours. The word assurance here means foundation and the word conviction actually means proof. So our faith in Jesus is not blind faith. It is not brainless sentimentality. It actually stands on solid ground. The faith of a Christian is on a foundation of proof. That's what the words assurance and conviction means. Now, that is, of course, not how most people think of what faith is, what people who believe in Jesus have. I was reading this week about um, a quote from a man named Ambrose Bierce. Um, he lived in San Francisco in the late 19th century. He was a writer and he wrote a book called Devil's Dictionary. Um, and in it, 
This is how he defines faith. He said, faith is belief without evidence in what is told by one who speaks without knowledge of things without parallel. Poor Christians going along with blind assurance, how irrational, how pitiable. I read another article this week by a man named John Lennox. He's a professor of mathematics at the University of Oxford. And John Lennox is actually a Christian and he interfaces with a lot of atheistic colleagues over matters of faith. And so people will tell him all the time that the problem with faith is that it is blind belief in the absence of evidence. He writes that he is often told that the trouble with believers in God is just that. They are believers. That is, they are people of faith. Science is far superior because it doesn't require faith. John says, it sounds great. The problem is it could not be more wrong. He goes on to argue that there's actually a tremendous amount of evidence in creation, in history, a rich oral tradition, and in archaeology to support the claims of the Bible. But the real teeth of his argument is that it is atheists themselves who operate with just as much faith or belief in their ideas, that the scientific method actually requires the same amount of faith we have, faith in reason itself. Let's look at this conversation that he shares that he'll have with people. So sometimes when, when in conversation with my fellow scientists, I ask them, what do you do science with? My mind, say some, and others who hold the view that the mind is the brain say, my brain. Tell me about your brain. How does it come to exist? And their answer is by means of natural, mindless, unguided processes. Why then do you trust it, I ask? If you thought that your computer was the end product of mindless, unguided processes, would you trust it? Not in a million years, comes the reply. You clearly have a problem then. After a pregnant pause, they sometimes ask me where I got this argument. They find the answer rather surprising. Charles Darwin. He wrote, With me the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of the lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. His point is that even atheists, even people who don't believe in God, are placing a tremendous amount of faith in the foundations of rational thinking that evolved through natural selection. Okay? Faith is a beautiful and inescapable reality of being a human being. You exercise faith when you get out of bed in the morning, when you leave your house, when you go about your business. You trust others and you trust yourself over and over and over. There's actually an enormous marketplace for faith in the world, all the way from the church to the science lab. The issue is not whether we have faith, those of us who follow Jesus and those of us who don't, but how and why we came to trust who we do. 
Jesus, as it were, isn't a lobbyist. He isn't trying to corner the market on faith. Jesus actually waits quietly in obscurity, giving faith as a gift to the most faithless and the most unfaithful for no other reason than that he is faithful and because he loves us. I think this makes Jesus, being as reasonable a person to place your faith in as all the other things, I think this truth about him being patient and loving makes him the most solid foundation of faith we could ever have. Because everybody else, is lobbying for my faith through coercion and power. I think there was a time when people would say, if Jesus is true, if he is real, let him show himself. Let him put himself out there. But actually, if you look at the power structures of the world, I'm actually more and more suspicious of anybody that is using coercion and power to get in front of me. It's the reason why I skip all of the Google search results that have the word ad in front of them because they have paid for my attention. Jesus emptied himself of power. He being participatory in the creation of all things, having all the power of creation, limits himself and empties himself. But faith in Jesus requires me to recognize how unfaithful people are, but more so how unfaithful and untrustworthy I am. Whenever I'm speaking with somebody who has doubts about their faith or about the existence of God, I applaud them for their skepticism. I just tell them to make sure they are also just as doubtful and suspicious of themselves. Be skeptical, but always include yourself. My faith in Jesus is actually largely based on a lack of faith in CJ. My assurance of Christ is as much about a lack of, its, of assurance in me as anything. Now, the good news is, if you're somebody who actually really needs evidence and wants Jesus to show you himself in order to have assurance, Jesus actually gives it freely. And there's a really great story of this in John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, okay? This is one of the people that walked with Jesus, was present for his whole ministry. He's called the twin. He was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. So Jesus is faithful and kind, even to those who refused to believe in him. But he also says this, and this is so important for us in verse 29. 
Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Is that the reason, Thomas? Is, that, is the reason you have believed me truly only because you've seen me? He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas had the opportunity to see Jesus in the flesh, and that must have been an enormous blessing. But there is a greater blessing for those of us who accept Jesus in faith based on the testimony of others. So I encourage you, like, read the scriptures and ask yourself, are these trustworthy people? And I have found that as I read the scriptures, I identify with the people in the stories and they seem trustworthy to me. The blessing of faith awaits you and I this morning if we will come to Jesus with openness, with willingness to receive him. There's another story that I think is is good, um, beautiful story that also correlates faith with blessing. And it's perfect for Advent. It's in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary meets with the angel of the Lord who tells her she will carry the Messiah. Then she travels to meet or visit her cousin Elizabeth, who is also pregnant. And look what Elizabeth says to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 45. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary was blessed because of her faith in Jesus. In the same way that Jesus tells Thomas that blessed are those who believed, Mary receives that blessing. Blessing, the blessing of the Lord, is the natural reward and outcome of our faith. This this is no small thing, okay? The whole intention of God toward mankind is a desire to bless them. 
That is the promise he makes to Abraham in Genesis and fulfills in Christ. So that all of the scriptures are about God's pursuit of mankind to bless us. This word blessing, makarios, means to extend or to make long. So that our faith causes Jesus, causes God to extend himself so that he can be reachable by us. So Elizabeth's words to Mary mean that because she believes, that means that the Lord will reach down from heaven to earth. And there is no greater reach that God could make, no greater extension of blessing than for God to himself come and appear in the flesh. Do you want Jesus? Do you want to see him? Do you want to touch him, hear him? You can if you believe. And if you struggle to believe, you can cry out to him, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief, like Thomas did, even asking for a sign, and you will not be pushed away. Something I say a lot, um, I don't know if I said a lot in my preaching, but I definitely say it when I'm with people in our church doing pastoral counseling or, or discipleship, I'll say, God is seeking to bless you the most amount for the longest amount of time. Whatever is going on in your life right now, that is what God is trying to do. He is trying to bless you the most amount for the most amount of time even though whatever you're enduring might feel like abandonment and might cause you to say, God, you're unfaithful. I can't trust you. The reality is your faith in, if you don't place faith in God, your only other option is to place faith in yourself or others. And if you do that, it, that will be only at best a temporary blessing are fall for, far short of what God has for you. The reality is that God finds your longings, our longings for him actually inferior to what he wants for us. I quote this a lot. It's from C.S. Lewis from his book, The Way to Glory. I love it. He says, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Do you believe, will you believe God this morning that his hopes for your flourishing are far greater than yours? Will you ask God to give you more faith this morning, to increase your imagination for how he might be working to bless you while you hold fast to your faith in the midst of difficult circumstances? Jesus came for that reason. He came to give faith to the faithless and the unfaithful because of his faithfulness. Will we place our faith in the only one in history that won't let us down? Will we redirect our hope to him this morning? 
where we place our confidence in him rather than in ourselves. In Christ, a faithful God invites faithless and unfaithful people to place their faith in him, setting their hope on things which are unseen. I pray that we will say yes to that invitation this morning and that we will spend this season of Advent asking Jesus to come in our hearts again and give us the faith that we are so lacking. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for the gift of faith that we have only because of you. We confess that we are um, giving away our faith to lots of people and lots of things, placing our hope in lots of entities that are letting us down, and we feel let down. We feel weary and sad, and we have grief, and we have depression. We're aware that something's missing. And so we just come this morning to ask you to forgive us, and we, um, we ask you to um, reveal yourself to us, Lord. Show us your hands and your side. Let us taste and touch and see the good news of the gospel in a new way. God, I pray for this season of Advent that we would, um, that you would direct our attention towards you, that we wouldn't be distracted by all the other things going on, um, and that you would increase our faith. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.